Welcome to Heritage Tree, where we talk about heritage care and development for people and organizations. And now to our host, Dr. Dina Michelle Roscoe. Calmness allays great offenses. If there is any mantra for our times, this is it. Go back in time with me to King David and his list of mighty men. Who is excluded from that list that surprises you? There's 30 men in there. And who is included and excluded? Who does King David include and exclude from that list that surprises you or that makes you pause or that you say, oh, that seems fair or just or doesn't? Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this day. Thank you for this moment to reflect on your word, for sending us your word in perilous and dynamic times that can heal and encourage us and give us discernment. Thank you that you still speak and that we can listen to you. Please open our eyes to see what you're doing in our lives and in the world. Open our ears to hear your voice. Open our mind to understand what your spirit is saying and open our hearts to care about you and your purposes and your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you turn to First and Second Samuels and Chronicles, you'll hear a lot of tales about kings, and in there you will find King David and some of his exploits and hardships as king of Israel. Now, if you have heard this story preached about before, it probably went something like this. King David was known as a man after God's own heart in the Bible, And he had an affair with Bathsheba, Uriah, the Hittite's wife, and he deliberately sent Uriah out to battle to a very dangerous place because his first attempt didn't work. You see, he was watching Bathsheba bathe on the rooftop and lusted after her, and long story short, she ends up having a child by him, and to cover this up, he has and invites Uriah the Hittite to come over for a feast and he tries to make him drunk and all this with the hopes that he would go home and and be with his wife and it would seem like his own child and so on and so forth. It's the soap opera, male soap opera cover-up that he attempts to do. And of course, what you may also know is that he, as a king, normally would have been out to battle with his guys, and he wasn't. He was at home, and that was possibly his first error. If there's something speaking to me in that, it would be, oh, what am I battling for in the Lord today? Am I in prayer enough? Am I in the Word enough? Scriptures call the Bible, the Word of God, a sword, a double-edged sword that's living and active, and that's able to perform a spiritual surgery on our lives and help heal and restore us and challenge us in ways that we need to go and grow. Well, he wasn't doing those things and he had that lapse and this big growing lie comes out of that. Uriah ends up up showing him is more righteous than he and says, I will not sleep and sup and be with my wife when my men are suffering. So in solidarity with his men, he sleeps in the threshold and then goes back. Now, instead of being convicted in that moment, 
you know, if this speaks to you, if the Lord is sending people in your life to speak into it, if they're showing you a more righteous way, how do you respond? Do you respond with reflection, contemplation, adjusting your course, learning a lesson, asking them for guidance or advice, making a different decision, doing what it takes to do the right thing? Or as it seems to often happen, do we get jealous or do we worry or do we try to cover up our our mistakes even more? Well, King David does the latter and he sends him back and he has Joab, his right-hand guy, send Uriah up to the worst part of the battle and he literally tells Joab to have the men withdraw from him, to not have his back, to ditch him out there. When he was in solidarity with them in the threshold, they betrayed him on the battlefield where it counted the most, where it mattered the most. And this may speak to some of you. You've had someone you've reached out to, you've befriended, you've supported, or maybe you asked someone for help or they, they offered to be a friend or a prayer partner or a, a, just a companion during a season or for a life. And you're there for one another and then there's a lapse and they pull back when you need them most. And what happens to you in those moments, what happens to your life or to your hardship or to your bitterness can really speak volumes. This is where my story takes a turn. My message takes a turn when I learn from this story from King David's list of mighty men that you don't often hear spoken. And this is why I want to bring this word forward, because I believe it's really important. I don't know exactly what the Lord wants to say in it but it keeps coming back to me. So calmness allays great offenses. Now, we arguably live in a narcissistic age in the new scriptures, in the New Testament, what we call the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, which is written by a lot of the apostles, mostly, namely the apostle Paul and John and Peter and James and others wrote a lot of letters to each other and to the churches And in one part, in Timothy, he talks about in the last days, people will be lovers of themselves. And Jesus warned about this in Matthew. You can read about that in chapters 23 to 25. And even in just his his debate and dialogue, his banter with the Pharisees and religious leaders really shows a marked contrast for how clear and humble he was compared to how religiously indignant they were of him. Of the many traits of a narcissistic reaction, you might notice the workings of jealousy. And if you go back to Genesis 1 to 3, you read about the serpent, Satan, and how he used his deception. And if you look closely at his methods, not just his words, but his approach to it, we can learn a lot for his tool, his basic small toolkit that he reuses throughout the nation's generations and centuries of time, the passage of time he reuses. And it looks different perhaps by the details and chaos, but it's more or less a similar method. He triangulates. First, he doesn't, he goes to God not to ask for anything differently of what he might have wanted in heaven, but he assembles a third of the angels to have an insurrection against God. He is jealous of God. 
and that his his internal climate, his motivation. God has this battle with the other angels with him, kicks him out of heaven. I saw Satan fall like a lightning bolt, says the scriptures. And then now the earth is his domain, the creative realm. And I go into this more in previous episodes. But for today, I just want to focus on when he approaches Adam and Eve, he says, did God say? He's actually gossiping. A lot of people talk about this in terms of him planting a seed of doubt in them. But the method itself is triangulation, and this is something that the narcissistic approach often uses. That It will be using um, terms like flying monkeys or lieutenants of the narcissistic-oriented person who is initiating innocent or not-so-innocent bystanders or enlisting people to, to sort of maintain this orbit or this control around an individual or a group. And Satan does this right out the gate. He triangulates. He talks about God instead of to God. And he distorts, of course, the message. He's spreading disinformation, lies. Jesus calls him the father of lies from the beginning. We know that the scriptures say God made man in his image and woman from man. And so there's this interconnectedness. And before he made humans, he made the created world, the earth, the universe, the habitat for them to live. He made the nest. He made the home for them. And then he rested. He rested because his work was finished, is how the First Nations version of the Bible puts it in their prologue. Take a look at that. It's an amazing translation done in partnership with so many amazing people and organizations. But Satan, the serpent, he he triangulates he lies and spreads disinformation. And this confuses Eve. It confuses the dynamic of couplehood, if you will, a familyhood that was ordained or made by God with Adam and Eve. It confuses the, their decision-making. Mind you, this in contempt of God, and because they are an image of God and a created entity of God, whom God loves, this is important, that is the object of the jealous rage of Satan. And behind that is this sort of entitlement, this attitude that I deserve, that it should be mine. We see that in the account of Cain versus Abel. Cain makes this perfect crop, and Abel gives his little lamb, whom he probably loves. And Cain has this perfect fruit basket if you will. And it's not so much the detail of the gift, it's the disposition of the giver. And one gave in possibly love and obedience, and the other gave in entitlement and pride. You see it in his response. You know, this should be mine. Your favor upon me should be mine. So what am I going to do? Triangulation. He goes and murders his brother. He doesn't have it out with God. God casts him out for murdering his brother, but he doesn't have it out with God. He protests a bit, but he doesn't take from that and learn from it. There is no pause. There is no, okay, I'm going to wrap up like a present what just happened to me and look at it, touch it, shake it up, listen to it, feel it, and 
till I figure this out, what God is saying to me. There is no coming to Jesus moment. There is no repentance, as it were, this sort of change of mind and heart that, well, I don't know why God rejected my gift. That really sucks. God, how do you want me to do this better? There is no sense of learning. You might read this in the narrative in the DSM manual for psychology or in other places about different disorders or narcissism or even Asperger spectrum. There's a sense of uh, centrality. There's a huge, heavy orbit of the person. This Everything must revolve around that. And they have language in some ways that I, opinion, think oversimplifies this. But if you really do just look at the method and the approach of the triangulation and how damaging that is, people died. <laughs> this happened with Joab, back to King David's men now. And now watch this. Bathsheba's baby dies after King David prays, mourns, and fasts for him to live. And so he goes back to God. He, Psalm 55, confesses his sin. His bones waste away in him. He's grieving. His his pillow is wet all night from his tears. His bones, you know, he's like flax, his muscles. He just, he won't live unless God forgives him and heals him. He takes it to God. He wraps up the suffering in himself. He fasts. He prays for God to forgive and not pass his sin on to his child. He is afraid that his child will die and the child does die. And then when the child dies, the servants tell him, you can read this account again and in the scriptures, he picks himself up, cleans himself off, and they're like, what the heck? Why are you not mourning now? And he says in his response, and this is very telling, he says, there was a chance, basically, that God would have heard my prayer and answered it. And now the child is gone. And until God brings me to him, or, you know, this child to me, there's this actual foreshadowing of resurrection that he has hope. He holds out hope against hope that one day in God's infinite mercy and eternal sense of sovereignty, he will bring King David and that child back together in a reunion. There is a part in that scripture and he takes it to God. That's the key. He takes it to the Lord and he chooses to believe that God forgave him and he doesn't stop feeling sad. Emotions aren't a light switch, but he changes his approach. He took his method to God and this is where triangulation happens so often. Anytime you encounter chaos, strife, or disorder, what does it say in James 3.16? It says, wherever there is jealousy and self-interest, you will find what? Every evil practice, you will find strife, you will find chaos, different translations put different words to it. But every time you find jealousy and self-interest, and what is that but a working definition of a narcissistic rage, of the self-absorbed wrath that is the way of Satan, but not the way of Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't clobber you with the truth. He is way more softer. In fact, Isaiah 
in so many places. Uh, Isaiah's from the chapters like 44 to 53, you read about this humble penitent servant of Jesus who gives himself, who takes on our sorrows and suffering. And what does it say? By by his stripes, we are healed. He reverses the triangulation. He feeds it back to us, the life that Satan is trying to, to steal. Thank you for joining us. If you like what you heard, tip us at the link below and inquire, subscribe, and shop our merchandise label of Heritage Tree and Heritage at dinamichellerosco.com and dogwoodgroup.io. Come back again when we gather around the Heritage Tree.